So feel free to stretch your legs out. Thanks, Jenny. I don't know if you had the experience tonight, but I really encourage you to explore, um, you know, in your sits during this eight-week class, to explore these factors on all different kinds of levels, including, um, including a little bit of devotional practice. So, at the end. However, I mean, it'd be very easy at the end of a set to go, yeah, maybe there was some mindfulness, but it wasn't great, you know, or sure, there was a few moments of interest, but, but instead of that attitude, to, to appreciate that these qualities, these factors exist in the heart and mind. I mean, that's really great. And the thing about even if you know even at, with a beginning understanding, it's like if there's something beautiful there, it real it uh, interrupts it it breaks apart deep-seated notions you know that I'm no good, I'm broken, I need to fix myself, I have to practice in order to become an enlightened human being. All of these notions about uh, lacking and not being good enough. So, like I mentioned the first week, you know, and the Buddhist tradition talks about the seven factors of awakening are considered uh, to have a healing force. And I think what it's pointing to is that just, just as we all know from personal experience that when we dwell on the negative, it's quite debilitating for us. We get sick, literally. I mean, if we dwell in negative thoughts about ourselves or about things generally too long without any break, it has an effect not only on the mind, but even physically if we're really negative for long periods of time. But when we recognize what's wholesome and beautiful, that also has an effect on the mind. So just see if that's true for you. So at at the very least, set apart some time in your sits to just run through the seven factors. I think I mentioned last week. I mean, if you haven't yet, memorize these seven things. And more than just the word, you have some sense of what the word's pointing to, like what the Buddha might mean by Dhamma Bachaya, which is the investigation of Dhammas. Dhamma just means, you know, phenomena, being interested in the way it is in a direct sense. And then just roll them through your mind, you know, like say each of the seven, and you can even put it in, in the form of a resolve, you know, just something light like making the resolve to see 
joy to see pity or rapture in the mind as it actually is. To learn something about joy, see something about joy that I haven't yet seen. And then just go back to your sustained, silent, present moment awareness or whatever you're working on, having just sort of dropped that resolve in the mind. Because remember, these seven factors, they're not like seven separate meditations distinct from the other meditation practices you do. They're just facets of a balanced heart or mind. So when the mind-heart comes into balance, it has these qualities shining. You'll notice a very active interest or investigation happening. The mind is interested. And and this unremitting energy begins to arise. That just happens naturally. Like when, when we're involved in really productive work, work that's satisfying, we get energized by it. Have you noticed that? It, it, we don't mind it. I mean, at some point, we might get exhausted if we do it too long. But for initially, when we're doing work that we feel, we understand is really productive, work that needs to be done, there's a energy just rises to meet that. There's a, a principle in Buddhism that um, the way you release energy is you make that effort, you commit to doing something productive. And that's the investigation. It's that sort of fundamentally wholesome activity for the mind to understand more clearly what's going on. As one teacher called it, what's what? (laughs) I listened to Joseph Goldstein's talk again uh, this morning, or maybe for the first time actually, on the seven factors of awakening. And he gave a talk on each of the seven factors. Actually, some of the factors he gave more than one talk on. And uh, I, I recommend them on an investigation. So I sent that link out, I think, the first week to Dharma Seed. And uh, Dharma Seed is a, a website that has a lot of the talks that were given at IMS and Spirit Rock. And if you go to that Joseph Goldstein site and look under his talks on the Satipatthana Sutta, the Mindfulness Discourse, and then you just scroll down until you see this talks on the awakening, seven factors of awakening, and then specifically, if you want, the one on investigation. But in there, he uh, he sort of outlines his different uh, the different definitions of investigation: investigation of states, investigation of truth, discrimination or discernment of dhammas, which can be translated as phenomena present moment phenomena. And his favorite was truth discerning wisdom. That which discerns or illuminates the truth by means of discerning wisdom. So that's a nice definition. That which discerns or illuminates the truth by means of discerning wisdom. And I like the discerning wisdom because, I mean, there's sort of different ways to image it in your mind. But, you know, one way is like, the mind isn't letting go. It's following following or tracking the present moment until something about that unfolding is revealed to the mind, until it understands something about it. Because our mind tends to have an experience and then immediately freeze it into a concept, static concept, this awakening is really awakening 
to the way it is as opposed to our static notions of our thoughts about things. So this discerning wisdom, it's really active, like we talked about with mindfulness, that it has to be moment to moment. The discerning also has to be moment to moment. In fact, you'll see that with all of these qualities, these seven factors, that um, they're pointing to, like the balance that it's pointing to, the balance of mind it's pointing to, also isn't static. It's a very alive um, balance. What's, there's a word in biology, homeostasis? Homeostasis, yeah. Which isn't like, okay, finally got homeostasis, but it's like all the systems are humming along together and they're all listening to each other and, uh, and, you know, in that sort of process of, of interconnection, interdependence, something really beautiful can happen. Somebody mentioned after the, the year-end retreat, <clears throat> we were walking, did a lot of group walking, and because it's winter, not too many people walked outside. So most of us, most of the time, just walked along the perimeter of this room in the lobby. And uh, different people mentioned to me and some in the closing circle about just that nice feeling of coming into harmony together and you know it's just a simple way or you notice it sometimes when you're just doing a work project with some people and that really wonderful community feeling that can arise and that's that but it isn't a static thing like if you're getting along with your partner it's not like oh god we're getting along it's like it has to be active that keeping the getting along you know keeping the getting along going is something where it's a dance and it's very alive. We're paying attention how we're doing, what's happening. So you want to see that in the investigation. You want to see that in the energy, in the joy, in the serenity, in the one-pointedness, and the equanimity. And especially with the more pleasant, wholesome qualities, there's a tendency to... Um, revert into a more static way of being when things get pleasant. It's a real problem. And and for meditators, when uh, states of mind, when states in meditation become more regularly pleasant, because it triggers a deep habit, which is, hey, it's pleasant. I don't have to do anything. I can relax. But here, relax is sort of a misunderstanding of relaxation. It's like, I can go dead. That's really what the mind, the habit mind is thinking. Like, I don't have to be a human being because it's pleasant. A human being meaning somebody who's trying to make something nice happen, something pleasant happen. But because it is pleasant, I can go to sleep. So these are factors of awakening. You know, that active, they're all active. Even serenity, there's an active part of serenity. Like when you really start to, you know, in a few weeks, we'll highlight this more, but every sit we should be playing at least a little bit with all seven. Don't just work on one because you want to see how they're just different angles on the same thing. But even things like one-pointedness, concentration and serenity and equanimity, you want to see that there's an active part of it. It's like for its serenity, it's like, it's like a, the heart, mind, body has to uh, rest, but the resting isn't just once. It's like every moment there's 
arresting. Sometimes it even feels like like there's, well, I've already rested, I can't rest again. But you discover actually you can let go and you can let go. That letting go can be an active, ongoing thing. It's not a one-time thing. It's a letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. And even stillness of concentration, it's like the the stillness um, has to re-arise moment by moment. It's not enough to have a still mind, a concentrated mind in a moment, but the stillness repeats itself. It has to re-emerge, blossom, and then it's going to end. So everything, all seven of these factors keep arising. I wanted to read a little bit. Maybe some of you read it over the week, the Sutta number 92 in the, um, in the Wings to Awakening by Ajahn Tanisro. So he has his introduction to the seven factors of awakening. And then he quotes a number of the Buddha's discourses after that. And he numbers them. So number 92 in that um, sequence of discourses. He has that one that I began to mention last week right at the end. I just want to read the sequence. And you find the sequence in a lot of places, including one of the most famous talks the Buddha gave on uh, mindfulness of breathing. So we normally don't, people normally don't get to that part. But if you read further along in that mindfulness of breathing, the Buddha talks about how the four foundations of mindfulness, being mindful of the mind and body, naturally leads to the seven factors of awakening, coming online, coming into balance. And it's so nice to see this sort of natural arising. So even though as a course, we're sort of memorizing this list and we're specifically focusing on each of the seven, in our actual experience, when there's a continuity of mindfulness, when we're mindful, basically, because mindfulness means a continuity of mindfulness, the mind will come into balance. See if you can be have a continuity of mindful presence and be out of balance. <laughs> that would be a great experiment, <laughs> a challenge. I challenge you to have continuity of mindfulness and be out of balance. And see, you know, we can see, can, is that possible? And the idea is mindfulness. One of the things mindfulness does is it uh, reveals what's out of balance. It recognizes what's out of balance. And so the correction is part of that homeostasis. It just arises naturally in the system. One uh, thing the Buddha said, this is a different sutta, I just want to share this. The ending of the effluence... That's one of the ways to translate, uh, I think it's the um, kalesis. It's another translation for the kalesis. But the effluence, the outflows, like the mind that's spinning on and on. The ending of the effluence is for one who knows and sees, I tell you. Not for one who does not know and does not see. For one who knows and sees what? Appropriate attention and inappropriate attention. So for one who sees appropriate attention, understands appropriate attention and inappropriate attention. Or another way of saying that is like 
relating skillfully or relating unskillfully in the moment. Any moment, even really wholesome moments, the mind can, in the next moment, relate to the really wholesome moment in an unwholesome way, like taking it personally. Or, uh, like I said before, just uh, not being awake anymore, thinking, well, it's pleasant, I don't need to be awake. I don't need to be present. Or, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, we could have a really difficult, challenging, painful moment. And in any moment, we could be uh, relating appropriately to that moment. So the play between wholesome and unwholesome has to do with what we're paying attention to and how we're paying attention to it. And there's literally no moment that can't be immediately transformed into a wholesome moment by what we pay attention to and how we pay attention to it. And the other way, we, we can immediately turn a wholesome moment into an unwholesome moment by what we pay attention to and how we're paying attention. So, if you remember from last week, uh, the Buddha was talking to this lay seeker, Kundaliya, and uh, he had asked the Buddha, you know, what what are the fruits of your practice? And the Buddha said something like, clear knowing and release. Right? I'm awake and my heart is unshakably released. It's not bound up by what I'm awake to. I'm awake to how it is right now and my heart is completely unbound in that wakeful, intimate presence. So, as a, as a good seeker would... You know, he asked, well, <laughs> you know, upon what did you do to have that experience? And the Buddha goes through, you know, he, he talks about the sequence. He says, well, um, so the guy asked, what are the qualities that when developed and pursued lead to the culmination of clear knowing and release? And he says, that, the Buddha says, the seven factors of awakening. And then he asks the same, well, how did, how did those arise? He says, mindfulness of the body and mind or the four foundations of mindfulness. And how did, you do, how did that come to be? And he says, um, skillful conduct, you know, right speech, right action, right thoughts, being wholesome or being skillful. And how, did, how were you able to live with right speech, right action, right thoughts? Learning how to restrain the senses, right? Because as an animal, we we have all kinds of compulsions. You know, as a conditioned being, we have all kinds of compulsions. Some of them aren't skillful. So we restrain that. And then how does that come to be? And then he talks about how, how you restrain the senses. And he goes through them step by step now, building up from the bottom. And I, would, I want to read what he says about the seven factors. So over and over in different talks the Buddha gave, he emphasizes that to be mindful, you need to live harmoniously. You have to have good ethical conduct. And mindfulness, to, be, to have that continuity of simple presence, our mind cannot be agitated by, you know, somebody's going to be seeking revenge because I hurt them. So, uh, the foundation of being mindful is having 
the bliss of blamelessness, as the Buddha might say. We were living harmoniously. We're not making messes. And if we do make a mess, we seek amends, we clean it up. And so when we get the invitation to be mindful, the mind's not agitated by a lot of guilt or a lot of uh, just unfinished business in our lives. And so then the four foundations, we can be mindful of the body and mind. The body and then the mind, as you might remember from the fall course, feeling, the colorings of the mind, and then the fourth foundation is mindfulness of dhammas, or you could say mindfulness of the mind moving in a skillful direction or mindfulness of the mind moving in an unskillful direction. So it's not just seeing the colorings of the mind, it's seeing whether the mind's getting more contracted, more burdened, or it's releasing its burdens. So let me read a little here. And then he goes on. And how are the four foundations, uh, four foundations of mindfulness developed and pursued so that the seven factors of awakening come to completion? On whatever occasion the practitioner remains focused on the body, on feelings, on the mind, on dhammas, these skillful and unskillful qualities, in and of itself, ardent, alert, mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. That means we're seeing things in and of themselves, not in terms of our likes and dislikes. And that's really the threshold for mindfulness. That's how you know whether you're being mindful. So when you're mindful of the body and you're feeling sensation, if you're still caught in what you like and don't like, the sensations you like, avoiding the sensations you don't like, you're not yet mindful. You're still on the level, playing in the level of worldly, you know, what the Buddha would call a worldly level. Mindfulness, it doesn't mean you don't like sensations and dislike, but you're not confused by the liking and the disliking of the sensations. So if you're aware of the pain in your knee and you're also aware of the disliking the pain in your knee, you're not confused by the pain You're not confused by the not liking of the pain. You just see those for what they are. They're the sensations and they're intense and it's that achy or throbby or stingy feeling. And the not liking, that's a mind state. You know, we call it aversion. And aversion's like this. But there's not confusion. So, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world, on that occasion, one's mindfulness is steady and without lapse. When one's mindfulness is steady and without lapse, then mindfulness as a factor of awakening becomes aroused. She develops it, and for her, it goes to culmination of its development. And then this is a sequential you know, uh, discussion of the seven factors. So remaining mindful in this way, one examines, analyzes, comes to a comprehension of that quality with discernment. So it's interesting that the investigation in this case is we're investigating the continuity of mindfulness itself, right? Remaining mindful in this way, one examines, analyzes, comes to a comprehension of that quality with discernment. When he or she remains mindful in this way, examining, analyzing, coming to a comprehension of that quality with discernment, then analysis of qualities or this investigation as a factor of awakening becomes aroused. One develops it, 
and for him or her it goes to the culmination of its development. And then the next factor, which we'll talk about next week, in one who examines and analyzes and comes to a comprehension of that quality with discernment, unflagging persistence is aroused. When unflagging persistence is aroused in one who examines, analyzes, and comes to a comprehension of that quality with discernment, then persistence as a factor of awakening becomes aroused. One develops it, and for him or her, it goes to the culmination of development. And then, um, with persistence, when persistence is aroused, rapture not of flesh arises. So it's a, a not not just a sort of a thrill in the body, like a. Often with rapture, what's obvious is the uh, physical expression of the mental state of joy or rapture. So we want to actually recognize the mind is wrapped. And it has a feeling, it literally has a feeling of being held, sort of a non-brokenness or non-deviation from the attention because the mind is thrilled. It's enwrapped. It's in, uh, what's the, how do you say it? It's wrapped up, I guess you could say, in the experience, glued to the experience. And that, that sort of heightened, that it feels like the mind is held, and for sure in the body, and sometimes in dramatic ways, the body just sort of, uh, feels a, a force of energy that, uh, um, stands out quite a bit. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. And then on with serenity, concentration, and equanimity. And now this is the, another important part. So the Buddha ends by saying to Kundalia, this is how the four frames of reference or the four foundations of mindfulness when developed and pursued lead to the culmination of the seven factors of awakening. And how are the seven factors of awakening developed and pursued so as to lead to the culmination of clear knowing and release? So the first thing the Buddha said again is just being mindful of the body and mind, the seven factors will will ignite. They'll come into balance. And then to to develop them, he says, there is a case where a practitioner develops mindfulness as a factor of awakening, and he goes on with all the other seven factors, dependent on seclusion, dispassion, cessation resulting in letting go. And then he goes on, he develops investigation and persistence and rapture and serenity and concentration and equanimity as a factor of awakening, dependent on seclusion, dispassion, cessation, resulting in letting go. This is how Kundalaya, the seven factors of awakening when developed and pursued lead to the culmination of clear knowing and release. And as these talks usually go, Kundalaya was very impressed and took refuge, um, became a lay follower of the Buddha. So, dependent on seclusion, dispassion, cessation, resulting in letting go. And this is true for all seven factors. So, as you begin to recognize the quality of investigation, see, the way you purify it is you're seeing your cultivating the investigation or a investigation that's dependent on seclusion, dispassion, cessation, and letting go. So seclusion, what does that mean? Well, going back to what the Buddha says earlier about mindfulness, 
you know, worldly would be still under the influence of likes and dislikes. So seclusion means being secluded from the influence of likes and dislikes. So when a mind is investigating dhamma, phenomena, the way it is, its interest in the truth, that truth discerning wisdom, its interest in the way it is, is so strong that it doesn't waver, it isn't confused by liking and disliking on a worldly level. So it doesn't, you know, in terms of the force, the factor of investigation, it doesn't matter if we're investigating, uh, you know, a really unpleasant physical sensation or really uh, subtle, beautiful feeling of pleasantness in the mind. What's really active is that force of investigation and it isn't, it's secluded from its worldly nature of being under the influence of what it likes, what it's conditioned to like and dislike. So it's secluded. With that seclusion, there's dispassion and cessation. Cessation of the self, really. Because any sense of being somebody investigating actually colors the investigation. So when investigation or any of these seven factors are really set loose, they're, they're a factor in the mind, but there's, it's that factor isn't somehow contained by a notion of self or any notion at all. So in a way, it's set loose as a factor. And you've got to remember that these seven factors... You know, you, you don't have to believe this, but this is how the Buddha is laying out the map. These seven factors are forces of nature. They're not something you own or I own or the Buddha owns. They're actual forces of nature. So as, they, um, as the supporting causes are there, remember the supporting causes is the continuity of mindfulness, mindfulness of body and mind with some continuity, then these factors, these forces of nature will begin to reveal themselves and what really sets them free as forces of nature is that seclusion, dispassion, cessation resulting in letting go. So the conditioned mind, the self-centered mind, lets go of any ownership of these seven factors as we're working with these, working with them. And that's what really sets them free. And that's why it's the proximate cause for Nibbana, for liberation. You see, the, the practice, the nat- it's a natural unfolding. If we begin as an ego to restrain our senses, restrain our, uh, you know, our compulsions and develop harmony, in the world of relationships. So we have some basic calm because we're not beating each other up and stealing from each other. And then it's relatively easy to be mindful and to develop continuity. And the continuity of mindfulness releases natural forces in the mind, which we call the seven factors of awakening. They blossom as self-centered identification, attachment to them cease. And Nibbana is unavoidable. And in different places, the Buddha talks about how as these factors develop and come into balance, that 
just, you know, he uses that, that image that you've heard him use in other situations where it's like a river flowing to the ocean. You know, it's not going to be stopped. That water is going to find its way to the ocean. And, and a mind where these seven factors are beginning to be recognized and released will lead to liberation, will become free from self-centered drama, self-centered weight. And that made Kundalini happy. <laughs> One thing I wanted to share before opening it up for a discussion is just some, some, a few things from Joseph Goldstein's talk I mentioned I, I listened to this morning. And specifically, I want to sorry, I want to focus just on investigation so that you can play with it a little bit more during the week. Some of us um, have been in the Sutta study group, and recently, the like, almost a year, we spent reading the questions of King Melinda. Some of you know it's considered uh, one of the scriptures or uh, part of the Pali Canon, even though it happened. Uh, I don't know how many hundreds of years after the time of the Buddha, but many hundreds of years after the time of the Buddha. But um, it's just this great collection, this uh, question and answers between uh, a king that was in probably what is now Afghanistan, uh, put on the throne after Alexander the Great had conquered a lot of that part of the world all the way to northern India. And so um, eventually... Buddhism spread there and uh, the monks, uh, when this enlightened monk arrived there, the monks complained to him. He was an arhat. He complained to him, this king of this area, he asked us all these difficult questions, constantly agitating us, and we don't know how to sort of put his mind at ease. And Nasagena, this enlightened monk says, I'll take care of it, <laughs> or something like that. And they had this beautiful discussion that somehow got recorded and passed down through the generations. And its I thought it was an interesting book. It, some people didn't like it as much. But <laughs> and one of the questions the king asks, um, Venerable Nasagena, uh, is how many factors does it take to awaken? And this monk answers just one, the factor of investigation. And then he asked, the king knew his stuff, which is why he could uh, bother all the other monks because he really he was really smart and had memorized and studied a lot. And he said, well, why are there seven factors of awakening then if it only takes one? Well, and he, he always gave similes. So he said, well, you know, would you be able to do anything? Would your sword be able to cut anything, do anything if you didn't unsheath it and you, if you couldn't wield it? And the king said, no. He said, well, in the same way. Like, investigation is the sharpness of the sword, but you also have to be able to take it out of its sheath and, and do something with it in order for it to be effective. So the other six qualities really allow investigation to do its work. So this is... I, the reason I share that story, and I think Joseph shared that story too, is that... Um, it's, a, it's an important factor to understand. And in a way, it's synonymous with what in the Eightfold Path is called right view. So investigation, the basic problem, of course, is we're not seeing things as they are. 
and then we live out of those misperceptions. So the correction is, of course, to see things as they are. The Buddha once said, and one who perceives impermanence, the perception of non-self becomes firmly established. And one who perceives non-self, in um, uh, one who perceives non-self, the illumination of the conceit I am arises, and one obtains nibbana in this very life. Right. So, one of the things we investigate, you know, when we open to experience, one of the things that just begins as soon as we move beyond our worldly likes and dislikes, and we're observing things in a more direct way, one of the things that just becomes unavoidably clear is how ephemeral everything is. And hopefully you're beginning to see that once you get some continuity of mindfulness, whether you're with your breath, whether you're aware of thoughts, whether you're aware of other sensations, if you really see the phenomena with some continuity without being confused by your ideas of that phenomena, this is one of the uh, signs that your mindfulness is becoming continuous. The ephemeral nature of anything, whatever it is that you happen to be having con- some continuity of mindfulness with, the ephemeral nature just starts to stand out. Impermanence, or whatever you want to call it, is truly the big gorilla in the room that nobody notices. <laughs> some of you have seen, uh, if you haven't, I, there's a way you can see it online, that um, John Kabat Zinn when he does big presentations, likes to show this video uh, where he's got, uh, there's like 12 or 15 people in a circle and there's several basketballs and they're sort of passing them around. And he asks you to watch this video, you know, and you're all watching it. And then he shuts it off at the end. And he asks people, you know, and in this case, I was there, there's probably 700 people in the room. And uh, he asks us, you know, how many of you, did anybody see anything weird? Raise your hand if you did. Well, I didn't. <laughs> but about... 15 or so people out of 700 raised their hand. He said, okay. And then he kept giving us some more clues. I think he showed the video maybe five times, four times, something like that. Giving us more clues. And, uh, oh, I forgot. The first thing he said is, try to count how many times they pass the basketball back and forth. So he gave us a task to do. And sure enough, you know, once he gives us enough clues, you realize that in this, right in the middle, a guy in a gorilla suit walks into the middle of the circle where people are passing the basketballs back and forth and kind of beats his chest and then walks out. But, you know, 700 and some of us were so busy trying to be the one who could count all the times they passed the basketball that we missed that. And not only seen it once or twice, but some of us (laughs) seen it many times. And then, of course, once, you know, once he says it, it's just like so amazingly obvious. My God, there's a guy in a gorilla suit walking in. (laughs) So it's like that with impermanence. Our mind is so obsessed with what we like and don't like and what's important and not important and ignoring everything that's neutral that we miss the big gorilla in the room, how ephemeral things are. So the Buddha says, and this is just an example of investigation and one who perceives impermanence, the perception of non-self. Because when we see whatever it is we're looking at, let's say the breath, and we really 
begin to wake up to how ephemeral the breath is, how much the actual truth of the breath doesn't fit our idea of the breath. That huge, uh, impenetrable disconnect between what we take the breath to be and what our actual experience is. Then you see how that leads to the perception of non-self immediately. Because once the mind sees that concepts don't line up with reality, the mind, one of the, the natures of the mind is it generalizes. You know, and it starts to generalize something about concepts. Well, we don't realize it now most of the time, but self is a concept. And so as the mind changes its relationships to concepts, the biggest, most established concept also uh, uh, becomes sort of uh, unimportant. It loses its power, its seductive power. So Joseph mentioned some, um, based on the three characteristics, which is, you know, the investigation follows some, just a, a handful of routes. And it's good to know these because this, like uh, that story about King Melinda and the enlightened monk tells us, investigation, seeing things as they are, is really at the heart of practice. And the the way the mind cuts through its fixation on concepts, its ideas about things into the way things are, it has just a few routes in. And so there's the three characteristics. And they're, they're really not different, but they're just sort of different ways of talking about how to investigate. So there's... Uh, sort of seeing um, seeing things in terms of cause and effect, and in in particular suffering and the cessation of suffering, like how it is that my experience gets really unpleasant, my heart gets really burdened or weighed down at sometimes, and then other times I feel not burdened by life, and to just to do that tracking in terms of cause and effect. That's and you see, the nice thing about each of these ways, there's a hook for the ego. Like, of course, the ego would be interested in that. Like, how do I end up suffering so much? And I know it. I know I don't always suffer, so I know it's possible not to be a suffering person. So it sort of um, makes sense we'd be interested in observing things in that way. And, you know, that's why this is such an emphasis on beginning to see motivation and the intentions in the mind. And like, is this a skillful intention? Is the flavor of this motivation or intention in my mind skillful? Is it already sort of expansive and light? Or is it heavy and narrow and leading in that direction? Right? And so that's part of that cause and effect. Another uh, sort of avenue in is... uh, is like uh, just noticing the different storms, emotional storms, and just being interested in that. Like when we, so not so much like tracking skillful and unskillful, but just taking advantage of suffering. Like the Buddha said, you know, suffering leads to suffering or it leads to search. So instead of reacting to suffering by tightening up, we get interested, or oh, what is this experience of suffering? And this is, you know, those of you who've been practicing for a while, which is 
everybody here, this is something we know really well. This happens all the time in our sits where the mind gets gummed up, gets caught up in some thing, and then because we're in this posture, you know, it occurs to us, oh, wait a minute, this is just something happening. What is this feeling? And we get interested in the experience of suffering directly. And uh, and seeing that the contracted state, there's sort of two things there. In any moment we're caught in a storm, there are two things. There's the contraction and the identification with the, the contraction, right? The mind is gummed up or weighed down, and then there's identification. So this is another avenue into investigation, is to be on the lookout for storms, for suffering. And they always find two things, where there's the yucky feeling, and then there's the claiming, this is who I am, or this is me, or this is how it is. Or, but there's some identification with it, and we can investigate that. And the third way that uh, Joseph mentioned about how we see how we can begin or initiate the investigation is uh, directly looking at uh, the present moment and just being interested in seeing things in an impersonal way. And there are many ways the Buddha talked about this. In one way, uh, one common way, and those of us who uh, were in the class in the fall, we studied the five aggregates. And this is a really good way to look at, to sort of examine taking things personally and seeing that we don't have to take things personally. So we can look at the five physical senses and just start seeing that there's nothing personal about hearing. There's nothing personal about the touch. There's nothing personal about taste. So the actual experience of the five physical senses, even seeing like, when I see, there's nothing personal about, it's really not much different than what a camera would do. Now there's the mind part, right? So we move from the body to feeling. But we can even see that about feeling, like the pleasantness or the unpleasantness that arise naturally in our lives. That when we're feeling something pleasant, aware of the pleasantness of an experience, there's nothing personal about that either. And it's just a matter, it's not like trying to convince yourselves, but when we actually look at the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of an experience, we see that actually there's nothing personal there. And you see where I'm going with perception, with different uh, mental formations like emotions or even volition, like being, I'm the one who's doing this, and even consciousness What makes it seem personal is when it's altogether happening and we add superficiality, like not paying very close attention, it seems very personal. I mean, clearly that's often, most often our experience, right? But we can break it down. Any kind of deconstruction where we're looking at experience not with superficiality, but with discernment, and we ask the question, is, is this personal or not? Well, see, it's not personal. There's nothing personal there. It's like uh, one story that Joseph Goldstein shared, and I'll just end with this and open it up for discussion, but he shared this one of the stories of Bodhidharma, uh, 
a figure in early Buddhism who brought, supposedly brought Buddhism to China and was evidently a fully enlightened person and was sitting there and just resting in this peace of his mind and there was somebody who really wanted to learn from Bodhidharma, but Bodhidharma wouldn't pay any attention. So as the story goes, he cut off his arm and threw it into his cave or wherever he was and that got Bodhidharma's attention. Oh, I guess he's sincere. So <laughs> they had this conversation um, that Joseph Goldstein shared in his uh, talk this morning. I'll just share it. So the student said to Bodhidharma, please teach me the Dharma seal, seal of all the Buddhas. Right? What's the essence of awakening? And Buddha, uh, Bodhidharma said, the Dharma seal of all the Buddhas cannot be obtained from someone else. <laughs> and then the student being more upset, <laughs> I mean, I lost his arm and given an answer like that says, my mind is distressed, please pacify it with your teaching. And then Bodhidharma said, present me your mind and I'll pacify it. You know, it's like, where exactly is the problem? And you see how this is sort of a more, even a more direct way to investigate. Basically asking yourself, well, where right now? Like, if, I, if we did a, a survey, we'd all probably answer, I'm not perfectly happy. I'm not perfectly content. I mean, hopefully some of you could say something else, but probably we'd all say we're not perfectly happy and content. But then if we asked ourselves, well, where exactly is the problem with this moment? Like, can we find the mind or the person that's discontent or not happy? That would be an interesting reflection. Can you present, like if maybe if we really had a, a powerfully enlightened person walk in the door, you know, that we had the sense could solve our problems. And she asked us, well, present me your problem. What would we show? What would we give her? Present me your mind and I'll pacify it. And then the student responds, I have searched for my mind, but I can't find it. <laughs> and Bodhidharma says, there, I've pacified it. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of investigation, of course, is, uh, you know, just seat of the pants in the sense of once we get a continuity of mindfulness, once we have those moments where there is some continuity of mindfulness, in a sense, the world opens up and then investigation as a natural force it will just take us into that world of things as they are. So, you know, talking about these different strategies, it's more like in hindsight we'll recognize, oh, this is what the mind did in that moment. It, you know, it was really... We wouldn't know it necessarily in the moment, but in hindsight we'd realize, oh, it was really about impermanence. It was really about looking at the impersonal, non-self nature. Is really... Exploring dukkha and the end of dukkha, suffering and the end of suffering. But that doesn't mean we have that strategy, you know, because uh, when there's a continuity of mindfulness and the world of experience begins to open up and energy arises and rapture and a deep peace and stillness and equanimity, 
it's like the mind at that point is a is nature doing things naturally <laughs> naturally right it's not like there needs to be a mark directing the show at that point and a lot of the practice at that point is learning how to trust where you know initially when we're trying to get some continuity of mindfulness and we're restraining the senses and we're starting over again there's a lot more of that ego-based willful effort but then later a lot of the effort in practice is trusting trusting the natural forces wholesome forces of mind to do what they're going to do to open things up see things as they are well I talked more than I wanted to tonight but um, we have a little bit of time people have questions or comments from your own practice to share with the group next week we'll have small groups to talk about investigation and energy but what comes to mind anything Yeah, Tom. This, this um, investigation it just seems a lot to me like and at the same time doing the, the meditation talking about getting to the silence from things and the cessation of things. Mm-hmm. So that, that feels a little paradoxical. Yeah. More about that. Well, it partly depends on your personality uh, but there's definitely room for some people to think about investigation, if you have a certain personality type, it will bring you the, the, the juice you get from thinking about the nature of things will create the incentive to want to do the actual investigation. And even for people who aren't sort of intellectually bent, having some thoughts, not a lot, will help, like asking the right questions in the course of a meditation or in the course of daily life. What's this? <laughs> you know, or how did that come to be? How can this cease? How does this cease? Those kinds of questions can frame how mindfulness, the con- because continuity of mindfulness, there are a lot of things we could be mindful of. Some things aren't that valuable to be mindful of. And some things are extremely valuable to be mindful of. And so, using thought to direct the mindfulness can be useful. But you're absolutely right. It's very easy to proliferate on and on. Because it is fascinating to think about this. And it even, for some people at least, is energizing to think about it. But... uh, it's really different. The sort of stimulation we get from a, kind of a really wonderful conversation or even our own thinking about something is really a different kind of reality from the direct investigation. And we won't know the difference unless we've tasted that direct investigation. And we might feel like this is very enlivening and useful and functional on some level to get clearer about how we understand things philosophically. But the direct experience is is different than that. It, it's a it's a different it's a really a, a completely different kind of experience, and that's why there's such an emphasis on sustained present moment awareness, silent present moment awareness, and focused present moment awareness, so that we really 
understand, like by definition, the breakthrough with mindfulness is putting aside the world of liking and disliking. That's the all of our concepts are really on that level, you know. And even intellectually, like if we're just in very subtle philosophical ideas, we'll like some and not like others. Like the ones that challenge our beliefs, you know, we don't like those ideas, and the ones that support our point of view. So that liking and disliking exists on all levels, sort of gross sense pleasures to very subtle thoughts. So we have to, mindfulness means we've gone beyond that world of liking and disliking. And we're into, you know, you can call it bare attention. It's hard to put it in words, but it's really a shift in consciousness. Mindfulness, the continuity of mindfulness is a shift in consciousness. It's different than being in the world of likes and dislikes. Or caught in the world, I should say, caught in the world of likes and dislikes. Because those natural seven forces are coming alive. Soon as we get a little continuity, then they're a little alive. When we get a lot of continuity, then they're a lot alive. And this is what shifts the kind of consciousness or the, the nature of the mind. I think we have to leave it here. It's nine o'clock. We have more time for a small group discussion next week. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.